That's why I want to work with folks who have said, look, I I'm, was lucky enough to be successful in my business, and I know that it hurts other businesses when people are sleeping on the doorsteps of these small businesses throughout Seattle. So what I've learned is that it's important to bring folks in to have those conversations that are going to be tough, but I want to have those conversations with people who are going to be true to their word. That's the voice of City Council member Teresa Mosqueda who shares what she learned from how the head tax enactment and repeal unfolded on today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. I am Jeff Shulman, a marketing professor at the Foster School of Business, and I am pleased to continue this season's focus on an issue affecting us all, homelessness. In addition to City Council member Muscada, you'll also hear from Josephine Ensign, who will open up about her experience with homelessness before she became a professor at the University of Washington. She will also give you some tips on easy actions you could take to chip in toward helping the homelessness crisis. Earlier on Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from King County Executive Dow Constantine. We need to expect that we're not going to have folks on our streets. We need to recognize this is not normal and it's not acceptable. You heard from Rick Hooper of the Uptown Alliance. It is a problem that needs to be addressed. We want to lead with the uh, let's provide more services and help to folks to enable them to help themselves to get off the streets, to get on a pathway out of homelessness. You heard from the Honorable Rob McKenna, who served two terms as Washington State Attorney General. You know, we live in, our, we live in a society governed by rules, by laws, by norms. And just because someone wants to be able to throw their tent up underneath I-5 and, uh, you, know, you know, live the way they want to live without regard to others doesn't mean that we as a society have to put up with that. And you heard from several people who have found themselves homeless, including Walter Hudson. I feel displaced more and more and more marginalized because I realize certain, certain uh, elements of society are much more successful than others, and others don't really have the capacity or potential for that kind of success. This season of Seattle Growth Podcast is all about bringing multiple perspectives on a complex issue to start a constructive dialogue about a topic affecting us all. Today's episode gives you insight into the city's process to address homelessness, as well as actionable ideas from someone who has experienced homelessness, written about homelessness, and who now addresses the needs of some homeless community members. Before we get to the first interview, I want to share an update about my next project. I've teamed up with a talented filmmaker, Stephen Fong, and together we are sharing the story of a community on the brink of vanishing from Seattle and their fight back. It is a story that brings hope and light during a time of confusion. Follow me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to get updates on when and where you can see my film, On the Brink. Now, without further ado, join me as I sit down with City Council Member Teresa Mosqueda. I am here at City Hall with the citywide City Council Member Teresa Mosqueda. Teresa and I have... Uh, done work together cleaning parks in uh, with Good for a Change. And it's great to sit down and, and talk about issues uh, affecting us all here in Seattle. So thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for coming over. And thanks for all you do in the community to clean up, to make sure that the word gets out so that we can actually create a place that the community feels safe and everybody feels welcome. So we're here to talk about homelessness. But before that, I'd imagine it is no small sacrifice to be a, an elected official and you've now been in this role for eight months. <laughs> eight months. Um, what motivates you to serve the people of Seattle? 
Well, you know what's funny? The biggest question I get right now is, are you having fun? And it's really hard to answer that question because this is not my definition of fun, but it is such important work to do. I learn so much every day. The community keeps bringing forward ideas and priorities, and we've been able to act on those. Uh, what motivates me is being able to see change that's really rooted in the community, in the residents here in Seattle. One of the first things that we did was listen to workers with disabilities who said it is it is it is wrong. It is not right that we are paid less than the minimum wage by statute. As workers with disabilities, we deserve the same wage as other workers. So we crafted a piece of legislation and codified our city's commitment to make sure that all workers, regardless of ability, are able to get the minimum wage. That was exciting. We're poised to pass the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, which came directly from nannies and caretakers, people who clean our homes, and from employment agencies who said, help us. This is an unregulated industry and we need help getting this these workers out of the gray market. So what motivates me is actually seeing the change that's rooted in the community and trying to bring a more positive approach to how we create policy change. And so one change that uh, appears to need to happen, uh, many would say, is how we address homelessness or you know, help us understand the magnitude of the homelessness challenge. It is absolutely a crisis. It's a crisis of consciousness. It is the health emergency of our day. It is an issue that affects us, our public health, no matter if you're the individual or family living outside, or if you're the people like me who on your way to work in the morning, see folks who are living outside homeless on intense in parks that we've been to together. Um, it is the crisis of the moment. And addressing homelessness and the lack of affordable housing is the priority that I think our city is responsible to address this year and next year. I wish that we had addressed um, the need for affordable housing five, 10 years ago. I wish that we had thought about investments upstream in mental health services and health services overall in creating um, case management assistance so that people who did get homes were not cycling back out because they they didn't have the permanent supportive housing that they needed. So for me, addressing homelessness is the crisis of the moment um, that we should take on and address with urgency. We cannot delay. There is not going to be federal dollars coming down the road to address this. We cannot rely on state dollars. And while the issue of homelessness is far bigger than Seattle's borders, we have to act with urgency. Uh, we have 75% of the people who are homeless in this county living right here in Seattle. So yes, I want to work with with our regional partners. I will continue to advocate for additional dollars for mental health and health services at the state level. But we do need to create shelters. Our shelters are at capacity. If we want to move folks out of tents, out of parks, and into shelter, we must create more shelters. And in order to create space, we have to create more affordable housing. So I look forward to working with our colleagues and the community at large to make sure that we can actually move folks off the street. And if I could say one more thing, it's not only the right thing to do from a, a human, uh, a humanitarian perspective, but it's it's a fiscally wise thing to do right now. Right now, we have money that's being wasted on ambulance rides, on firefighters who are showing up and they recognize, they know the names of the homeless people that they're calling to serve. Um, we also know that there's people who are working out, who are working and they're still living outside. We can do a better job of serving everybody in our community if we get folks housed and get them the services that they need. And now this isn't a new problem. City Council has been working on addressing homelessness for years. What do you see as the most urgent gaps? Like, where is the city not doing what it could? 
Well, it's multifaceted. Right now, I think what we're looking at is improving the ways in which we shelter those. The most immediate need is to get folks into shelter. But what research has shown us from the Poppy Report to other national reports is that people don't just need somewhere to sleep for six to eight hours at night. They need somewhere to keep their stuff safe, to know that they can go somewhere if they need case management. 24-7 shelters are actually good for the individuals to help them get on their feet. And it's also good in terms of cost savings. We know that it's easier to get folks the health services they need, the housing services, to make sure that there's a place um, where they can receive information about possible jobs if they have 24-hour shelters. So the first thing that I think we need to do is to narrow in on getting folks the 24-hour shelters that they need and not just mats on the ground. The second thing is, it's not just about a bed or a door to close or a roof over their head. For some folks who've been living homeless for a long period of time, they need assistance with getting the medication that they might need, um, getting assistance from case managers and figuring out how to you know get get back on their feet with a job if they don't have one that requires case managers it requires um, substance abuse counselors it requires folks who can be there as um, as supportive entities around these individuals but right now our city isn't making the investment in the workforce that's needed to get folks stabilized and housed did you know that if you had a master's degree wanted to get a job at the city and be a chemical dependency counselor which requires a masters, right? The average pay is $33,000 a year. That is not going to create the stable workforce that we need to get folks housed. The last thing that I think we need is to take a holistic view at where the city can actually be creating these shelters and housing. One of the things I'm really excited about is a new interactive map that we have uh, created in partnership with Enterprise, a nonprofit housing advocacy group that looks at every parcel of available public land that's either being underutilized or not utilized at all and ask where can we house folks? How can we create shelters and housing, mixed income housing, maybe even the ability to own your own homes on these new parcels? And it's the first time this type of map has ever been created. Let's look at that map. Let's look at our existing zoning laws and figure out how we can create affordable homes for folks throughout the city so people truly have a place to move into out of shelters and off of the street. And so a lot of these ideas that you've had to close the gaps and start to address this homelessness uh, crisis they cost money. Um, and as you said, you know, $33,000 for a caseworker, obviously, we, if you pay them more, you, uh, you might get more people into these roles, but it's going to cost more money. Where does that money come from? Or where in your mind should that money come from? It, it does cost money. And um, the current analysis is that we are lacking about $200 million at a regional level in getting funding in the door to serve our homeless and uh, folks who are at risk of becoming homeless. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce's own report said in this region, we need about $410 million per year to serve our homeless population. If you combine what King County and Seattle is currently doing, we're still at a deficit of about $200 million. So we need to figure out how we right side up our upside down tax system from the national to the state to the local level, but especially focusing on Washington State and our city. We live in the most regressive tax system in the entire nation. Washington State has no income tax. We have no capital gains tax. We have individuals who have actually been very fortunate to earn a lot of wealth in this area who have come and said to the state legislature and locally, 
help us. We want to be part of the solution. So I think that given the conversation we've had over the last two months about the employee hours tax going away, we do need to call on our state legislative partners to right side up our upside down tax system because we simply do not have the revenue that we need to serve our most vulnerable. And here locally, we don't have those type of tools in our tool belt. So what I'm trying to do is think outside of the box about the ways that we utilize existing resources better, do things smarter, and be innovative with the, with the land that we have. That's why this week I introduced a piece of legislation that would ask every city department, but specifically City Light here, um, to instead of selling property, to actually hold that property in public hands so that we can, at a lower cost, develop affordable housing, mixed income housing, mixed use housing. So maybe there's a childcare facility or a library or a small business on the first floor and there's affordable housing, two and three bedroom units, uh, mixed income units above those facilities so that we can proactively plan for the type of housing and services that our community needs in the future. That's fiscally wise. You know why? Because we reduce the cost of building housing by around 15% when the city maintains that land in public hands. So yes, I want there to be a right sizing of our upside down tax system. And I want us to think smarter and more proactively about ways that we can utilize public land in the city of Seattle to do things like childcare and housing and um, public spaces so that people have a place to play with their kiddos on playgrounds. It's not rocket science, right? It's the smart thing to do. It's common sense. But it requires us thinking outside of the box and asking people to do things a little bit different. And then critics of these taxes argue that you know more taxes make it less affordable so that actually could push people into homelessness, or these taxes might uh, induce employers to hire fewer people, which could have people lose jobs that help them uh, stay out of homelessness. How do you react to those concerns or criticisms? Um, Well, I definitely want to uh, make sure that we look at the recent history in Seattle and learn from what's happened in our city. We've had many people who are concerned about increase in the minimum wage, Uh, sick leave provisions, secure scheduling provisions, people who said, if you do this, then business is going to be harmed. But what did we see instead? In the year year following the passage of the $15 an hour minimum wage, we saw a thriving local economy pop up. We saw more people be able to put food on the table and take care of their loved ones and keep a roof over their head. Um, We have seen low-income workers be able to get the hours that they need to take care of their families. Uh, And yes, I think that there's always going to be those questions about the unknown, but Seattle's case uh, study shows that when we invest in the lowest wage workers, local economies do well. And we also want to make sure that those who are done, who've done the best in our local economies, uh, like like Amazon and Starbucks, are also able to continue to prosper and do well. But to also recognize they've done well within our city borders, and we need to be investing back into that local community that's made them so good. When we talk about taxes, it's not about um, asking people to. Um, somehow be uh, on the hook. We're asking folks for greater shared responsibility for there to be shared prosperity. 
We can use those taxes for roads, which a lot of people call and they say, hey, how come there's still a pothole? We can use them for sidewalks. A lot of folks both in the north end and the south end call me to say, why aren't we investing in sidewalks in our community to have true, healthy, safe communities? And we can use those dollars to actually care for the health and the housing needs of our of our community. I understand that there's concern about the last uh, few months and the conversation we've had, and I would love to find that magic bullet solution, but it's going to really require us working at the state level level to get the revenue that we need, asking those who've done the best in our local economy to step forward and come up with innovative solutions. I've met with folks at um, Tableau, for example. I'm going to be meeting with folks at Redfin. These are two large tech firms who have actually said, we didn't love the employee hours tax, but we know that there's a crisis out there and we want to be part of the solution. Those are the type of people that I want to sit down at the table with and have conversations with urgency, mind you, to make sure that we can actually get some dollars in the door to help with this crisis that we see. Um, taxes, I think uh, we need to think about them as not not being a punishment tool, but actually how we reinvest in the communities that have made many of these local businesses um, so effective. But right now, unless the state helps us with the revenue crisis that we have by changing the tax structure, we do have to act at the local level because no one is going to come in and help us with a large check at the state or the national level, we do have to step up. And that requires people working hand in hand with us from community advocates to housing advocates and large businesses so we can find a solution. And so with this uh, proposed employee hours tax, um, create a lot of controversy here in Seattle and uh, ultimately was uh, repealed. What did you learn from that? How those events unfolded? Did you What did you learn that might help you and help Seattle going forward? Um, well, you know, we still have the same crisis on the street that we had three months ago when this um, potential tax was being considered. We still know that there's families living outside with their kiddos. We know that there's people who have jobs that just can't afford a home to live in in Seattle. And we still have the crisis of health services that are going un unmet in Seattle. Um, so many of those things I was excited about for the employees' hours tax to potentially address the workforce needs, the health care needs, creating the shelter and helping to create the housing that we need. We literally cannot move people out of the streets and out of parks, which many people are concerned with, and into homes or shelters when we have shelters are at capacity and we don't have the housing to move folks into. Um, what I know from my experience, and I've worked in labor and I've worked as an advocate and down in the halls of our own state capitol for almost a decade, is that you have to sit down at the table with um, folks that you might not agree with every day. You have to sit down and hammer out solutions. That is part of what I tried to do. That's part of what the mayor tried to do. And in conversations with Amazon, um, they said they were fine with the ultimate package. Within 24 hours, they changed their mind. They, they funded the opposition and they changed their tune. And for me, that was really disheartening because I have for a decade negotiated tough policy solutions with individuals who we might not see eye to eye with. But once you agree to something, once policies pass, the most important thing is implementation. And that's not what happened in this case. I'm, I'm very disappointed that we ended up with that um, repeal happening at City Hall. And I do think um, it is still a crisis that has gone unmet. What I'm interested in now, though, is in finding a solution. And that's why I mentioned I want to work with folks who know that there is a crisis and want to be part of the solution. That's why I want to work with folks who have said, look, I, I'm, I'm, was, 
lucky enough to be successful in my business. And I know that it hurts other businesses when people are sleeping on the doorsteps of these small businesses throughout Seattle. So what I've learned is that it's important to bring folks in to have those conversations that are going to be tough. But I want to have those conversations with people who are going to be true to their word. Um, That's the conversation I'm engaged with right now. I also think that it's important that we talk about how this is beneficial for the entire community. My talking points, which differ from um, my colleague, was that when we invest in taking care of those who are the most vulnerable, it actually helps local businesses. It helps the local economy. And this isn't about gouging one employer or one company. This is about how do we create a healthy local economy and a healthy population. So it's important that that narrative uh, be accurate and that we have those conversations early. Um, And I want folks to continue to send ideas our way. We've had a lot of small and medium-sized businesses send ideas our way. um, And I'll continue to meet with folks to try to find a solution. I'm hopeful, though, that we can find some path forward before winter comes again this this fall, because we still have around 5,000 people living outside. And um, and I know that everyone in the city is compassionate. We voted time and time again for additional levies. We voted time and time again to help those who are the most vulnerable. This is a very compassionate city. And I'm really hoping that we can get away from this division that we've seen locally and nationally and find solutions together. That's the way I operate. And that's the way I'll continue to operate. So looking forward to those ideas coming in from your listeners. So, uh, Ideas coming from the listeners, and now maybe you could give an idea for the listeners. What can somebody who's inspired by your words do without relying on on you to do it for them? Well, um, I think one thing would be to keep their calls and comments coming in, um, both to the state and uh, county partners. Um, I think that we, we want to make sure that people feel heard. Um, so keep your calls coming. Uh, One thing I'm interested in doing is having conversations with our police department as well. Some of the concerns that I hear from people are that they feel like the police has have had their hands tied. There has, and I've looked into this, there has been nothing that this council has done to ask the police to step back or not enforce the laws. So if there's a situation in your community, please let us know. Um, But overall, what we need is um, compassion around creating additional revenue so that we can create housing and shelters. Um, We also know that we uh, need our businesses to step forward. You know, it's, it is the word that I've received is that Amazon has decided not to permanently house Mary's place. For example, we need large individual businesses to think about ways that they can continue to house those and give philanthropically to organizations that are helping with the crisis of homelessness. Philanthropic donations have gone down over the last two years. You would expect the reverse when we see so many folks living outside. The other thing that I think folks can do is help us spread the word. Um, Many of the things that Seattle has done in the last year have actually shown improvements. We have seen more exits from homelessness in this last year than we've seen in the last three years. We now know that it's better for people to be in 24-hour shelters than it is just to have a mat on the ground. The last thing I would say is um, much of what we had tried to include in the spending plan, which was robust for the EHT, also revolved not just around housing and shelter, but health services and and trash removal. Those are going to be my priorities as well when it comes to budget. Uh, so we want to be proactive. We want to be thoughtful and compassionate. And we have to act in this year's budget to invest where we, um, where we know it works. Shelters, housing, health services, and trash removal. Any concluding thoughts? The time for us to unite as a city is now. The 
issues that have been in front of this council in the short time that I've been here um, are are the crisis of our society, not just in Seattle, but nationally. Every large city is dealing with the crisis of homelessness and housing. And I would love for us as a city to, again, show that we can come together and be the leaders on the national level. Um, I, When I ran for office, I said, I want to get away from the labels and the camps that people have been put into and to recognize that this is a pro progressive, proactive, and compassionate city. The national rhetoric is a divisive one. And what I'm hoping that we can do here at the local level is find those areas of commonality, know that people have very true and uh, shared common values, which is that we want people to be housed. We want people to have the health services that they need. And we also know that we have a regressive tax system across the board. So looking for people to find ways to come together now, um, both at the local and the state level. And you can bet that I'll be down in the halls of Olympia asking for us to right side up our upside down tax system. And I'll continue to advocate for the health services and housing services so that people can truly move off of the street and into homes and shelters that they need. And I think that requires us coming together and um, putting aside the rhetoric that we have um, seen take over our nation. And I know we can do that in Seattle. We've done it before. And this is, uh, this is, not, um, this is not unique to what Seattleites um, are living and breathing every day, but I think we can be unique in how we come together in this moment. Councilmember Mosqueda, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let me know when the next park cleanup is. I'll be there. To get perspective from a scholar who has experienced homelessness, written about it, and is currently addressing the needs of Seattle's unsheltered community members, join me as I sit down with Josephine Ensign. I am here at the University of Washington with Josephine Ensign. Uh, she's the director of the Doorway Project and a professor in the UW School of Nursing. Josephine, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So we're here to talk about homelessness, and that's an experience that you've both had and written about in a, a wonderful book, Catching Homelessness. Uh, but before we get to your experience and before we get to your books, um, just tell me a little bit about yourself. How long have you been in Seattle? What brought you to the UW? All right. So um, I'm a nurse and a writer and a mother <laughs> and, um, and a spouse. Um, what brought me to Seattle 24 years ago was graduating, um, in the process of graduating from um, graduate school in, in Baltimore, uh, where I was finishing up a study on homeless youth. And at that time, especially in the U District, there was a significant um, population of homeless youth and also a lot of service providers that were um, trying to really work together on some very positive, innovative ideas. So that's what drew me here um, initially in terms of interviewing at um, University of Washington in the School of Nursing. We've got a whole bunch to talk about because you've experienced homelessness, you've written books about the safety net and homelessness, and uh, you've got this doorway project, which is helping homeless here in Seattle. So we've got a lot to talk about. Let's start with just your experience, homelessness. With, so here you are as a, a professor at the University of Washington, and yet you yourself has, have experienced uh, something that we're seeing many people around us experiencing. How did you find yourself homeless, and what was it like? 
All right. So I think the first the first thing, and as I kind of open in the preface of catching homelessness, um, that homelessness in poverty um, and its kind of attendant ills, it is very stigmatizing um, for for people. And I had kind of hidden that. Um, even from myself as I as I moved out here. My experience of homelessness happened when I was a young adult in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. So it was very much uh, Southern <laughs> um, uh, situation back in the 1980s. And um, and for me, it was it was spiraling into a pretty significant depression, um, a very difficult um, uh, marriage that fell apart, and kind of losing my my family, and my home and my job, and um, not having appropriate resources in terms of counseling. So I lived in my car and in kind of uh, sheds for about six months until. I got out of that and did a Greyhound therapy, literally, to to Baltimore to go back to school and to get appropriate um, uh, mental health treatment. And so what's the toughest part about living in your car? Trying to pretend that you're not um, and passing, right? I mean, there's a whole thing of, of wanting to pass. Um, I, I was living in my car some sometimes in in Richmond in different in different areas I um, have always been very athletic and had a free swimming pass at the the YMCA and so that's where I took my showers and um, and and did a lot of a lot of laps that was also mental health treatment for me at the time and and also lived um, kind of in a more rural part outside of Richmond, which is uh, close to where I grew up. So that part I could hide more, and you know when I had enough like gas money um, for it. It's obviously it's not ideal, and and also being a young woman, um, the safety concerns uh, were, were very real for me, um, as they are for a lot of people living in their cars, especially young women. How did being homeless affect you emotionally? Um, what what do you recall feeling from those days about living in a car, using your free pass to shower, trying to stay, survive? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I do I do a lot of research and work now on trauma informed care and like even the neuro neurobiology of trauma. And so even, even trying to remember those, what, what I was going through and, and kind of reliving it in a way and, and make, trying to make a coherent narrative out of it with, with my writing. Um, it's being homeless is a traumatic experience, no matter what, no matter what reason that you have for homelessness. I mean, the recent earthquakes in Indonesia, right? I mean, that's left a lot of people homeless. So the memory of it in terms of it's very fractured kinds of uh, and very visceral um, sorts of sorts of memories. But the thing that, especially from my own experience of it, of, of realizing is that homelessness itself is traumatic and whatever led up to homelessness and whatever factors are kind of keeping people stuck in homelessness, that those are traumatic as well. So it's, it's kind of trauma on top of trauma. And so from homeless to professor at the UW School of Nursing, did you ever think that you would get to where you are today? 
grew up in a family, although it, it had a lot of um, traumatic kinds of things that contributed to my own homelessness. Um, but I still had a family that believed in education, so I had a good education. I had many advantages that, that other people, I realize other people do not have experiencing homelessness. So of at the time, what I think I mainly was thinking about is that can I curse on? <laughs> uh, try not to if you could. <laughs> okay, that I had to get the um, get the heck out of uh, for me the South because um, that was a lot of what was keeping me stuck. I mean, very Victorian kinds, very um, smothering values that I was living under at the time. That I had to get out of it in order to survive, um, much less thrive. And so now you've got this book, Catching Homelessness: A Nurse's Story of Falling Through the Safety Net. Uh, if somebody wants to pick that book up, what do you hope that they get from reading the several hundred pages of that story? What do you hope they'd take away? I think the main thing that I hope people take away, for one thing, that homelessness is not homogenous, that every, every person's experience of homelessness is going to be unique, but at the same time, there are kind of overarching societal and other kinds of factors that, that contribute to homelessness and to um, kind of ill health that, that goes along with with homelessness. So of um, of getting a better idea of you know what we term wicked problems that homelessness is a wicked problem. And um, this book also deals a lot with our healthcare safety net and how flawed it is um, and contributing to to homelessness and people staying in homelessness. And so now, not only have you written a book, but you're also helping others uh, who are experiencing homelessness here in Seattle uh, through the Doorway Project. Can you tell me a little bit about the Doorway Project? I can. I love it. Um, the Doorway Project uh, opened in about a year ago. It officially launched uh, September 1st of 2017. And it had been an idea kind of stirring around among some of our faculty at the University of Washington, and I was, I was one of them, of trying to come up with a kind of more innovative way of providing um, community resources to all of our teens and young adults in the university district specifically who are experiencing housing and food insecurity. And that includes our, our own students. I, um, you know, personally in the past year have had like four or five students that have experienced that, that I, that I know of personally. So um, having that, um, and we had um, speaker Frank Chop, who uh, helped with appropriation from, from the um, Washington legislature to, to actually fund a two-year kind of pilot of it. And so we have launched that, and instead of studying it to death, which we can do here at the university, um, what we decided to do was to work together across many disciplines and with the homeless youth in the U District and service providers and the wider community to start a series of pop-up community cafes. So actually starting with the idea let's have a kind of a safe space for everyone, including the wider community. It's not like this isn't the, the, the homeless youth, you know, uh, community cafe. So it was much more open and, and less stigmatizing and having a variety of health and social 
services available for people to learn about. So we've done three of those pop-up cafes with um, an amazing partner at U Heights, the community center, and um, also now official uh, partner with Youth Care, um, who's the youth serving agency working with us and have done related kind of participatory research to build a design um, for the actual bricks and mortar cafe. So how do you measure success with the doorway project? How I personally measure success, right? There, there are different ways of measuring success. I mean, one, one way of measuring success that, of course, uh, many, many funders, um, including the state, um, are interested in is, okay, is this working in terms of like a new model that's helping to not only bring young people in who need different kinds of connections and services, might not already know about them, but not only the the knowledge, but actually the connections um, to those services so that they can then hopefully have more positive trajectories. What do you hope the Doorway Project, you know, it's a two-year project, the two-year funding you've gotten, what do you hope long-term comes from it? Well, it's a, a two-year um, pilot project with um, with the probability of it being extended in some some way that the university wants to continue in the future after after this coming June. Um, what I hope that it does, and I think that it already has has done, um, uh, is to bring a lot of different, uh, sometimes competing uh, parties together. Uh, at the same table, literally, to uh, talk about what are some ways that we can work together and uh, to actually improve the coordination of services, because a lot of times they're very fractured and that doesn't help anybody. As well as one of the things I'm really excited about, being a university professor here, is our amazing students and what they have done, because they're a key part of the Doorway Project and what they've done to really help to take it in a very interprofessional uh, perspective um, to like things that we hadn't even thought about before. What could people learn from your experience and, and how can they help if they, they want to? All right. Well, one thing I won't go into lots of detail, but it's not just providing food for homeless um, people. It's also uh, a safe space for people to be unsafe and to start like across the community to have these what we were talking about, the civil dialogues across difference. So that's what we're also trying trying to do through the Doorway Community Cafe. So one thing is that people um, are, are completely invited and welcome to come to our next pop up cafe. And it's going to be Friday, August 24th. And and 12 to 4 p.m., and it's at the Street Bean Cafe um, at 5015 Roosevelt Way Northeast. And it's also being put on in conjunction with the amazing U District Public Library. So what could people expect if they show up to the Doorway Project Pop-Up Cafe on Friday, August 24th? They can come for amazing coffee from the Street Bean Cafe, which is a social enterprise um, from New Horizons, so it benefits homeless youth. And learn about lots of different services in the area um, for uh, housing and food insecurity across the board. Have fun. They're going to be art kinds of activities and also be able to weigh in on the iterative design that we have for the actual bricks and mortar um, community cafe. And if you can't come, because this is we're, we're trying out the business model of pay it forward, which we could use a business student to help us on. Um, but the students have started a registered student organization organization for Doorway through the GoFundMe 
So it's the GoFundMe and the Doorway Project Pay It Forward site. And they are ra- these are the students from UW are raising money to be able to provide coupons for the young people that come that can't afford the coffee and pastries. And so now you have a new book just out uh, this year, Soul Stories, Voices from the Margins. What inspired you to, to write some more? And, and tell me a little bit about what you've written here. So Soul Stories, Voices from the Margins, it's um, uh, published by University of California Medical Humanities Press, and it's, it's uh, literally about three days old. <laughs> so it's, it's very new. And the reason that it's on trauma-informed care and the role of narrative and health and healing um, has a lot to do with homelessness. And I weave in some of my personal experiences, um, both as you know, the lived experience of homelessness, but also as a healthcare provider, trying to provide compassionate, effective healthcare, and also in my role as a, a professor, trying to influence our future healthcare providers um, through our students. And what really was the motivation for, for writing this, for one thing, I think that a lot more people need to understand what trauma-informed care is, um, not just healthcare providers, but the wider public. So it's scholarly grounded, but very, very readable. And the very specific impetus for writing it was after I finished Catching Homelessness, um, I had a lot of people ask me, okay, so you got into this chapter, it's called Greyhound Therapy, towards the very end of your book when you kind of open the door on your own trauma, you know, on your own dark, dark uh, side that contributed to your homelessness, but you didn't go there. You know, why is that? You know, and the whole thing about, because it's a, a medical memoir, and we a lot of times kind of want the purient details, which I, in that book, decided I didn't want to do because it was about homelessness in general. Um, But in Soul Stories, I do go into gender-based violence, um, which has affected me um, uh, personally as well as as professionally. And uh, so that's why I wrote this book. We've got people living on the margins here in Seattle. You've got a lot of people frustrated either because of you know, you've got a public health concern, and you also just, uh, there's people frustrated because they see their fellow community members really struggling. They're looking for answers. You've written two books uh, on living uh, voices from the margins, you've, uh, catching homelessness. You've lived homeless. You've invested in this doorway project to help the homeless. What's the answer? Well, again, kind of going back to what I, what I talked about briefly, wicked problem, which is not not meaning evil. Um, it's not a moral moral um, word, but it's actually from urban planning, um, and those are problems that are so multifaceted that they defy easy solutions. So that if you try, for instance, with homelessness, it is a classic example of a wicked problem. You try throwing low income housing at it, for instance. And yes, we need low-income housing, but that's not the only contributor to homelessness. And so if you just focus on one thing, um, it can be a very adaptive system that then causes other problems that you didn't anticipate. Um, So I don't have like any easy solution um, to it. In the very back in the appendix of Catching Homelessness, I worked with an amazing person here, emeritus faculty from social work, Nancy Amade, in terms of like 10 simple things you can do um, in terms of addressing homelessness. And one is, and it's very simple, is to acknowledge people, um, to not turn away. And that's obviously as long as they're not 
becoming violent or, or threatening. Um, but if you don't want to, for instance, give somebody on the street spare change or whatever like that, um, that's okay. That's, you know, that's up to you. But to at least acknowledge them as a person and say, no, sorry. Because um, the worst thing is to ignore ignore people. And then um, some of the other things like carrying uh, fast food coupons, um, but also uh, finding out local services, lo local agencies that have a good track record for providing you know, actual services for homeless people, but who are also working upstream on solutions to the larger homelessness um, crisis. And this is kind of a, a dark circumstance, the homelessness and just the rise and visible increase in it here in Seattle. A lot of people are looking for hope. Can you give any hope? Is there any reasons for hope in this crisis that Seattle's facing? Yes, hope. That is that is that is the uh, the word for our entire country right now. I think the fact that people are having fairly open and, for the most part, civil discussions about the issues of how how it's affecting them specifically. Um, I think that that is a reason for hope. Um, I think also, for me personally, what I am seeing hope through, again, going to the Doorway Project of the young people, both our students who are trying to figure out like new solutions that are compassionate, but also, you know, not bleeding heart, kind of just whatever, whatever goes is okay. Um, as well as as young people experiencing homelessness of wanting to have um, a better a better life and a, and a better city for all of us to live in. So that gives me hope. Josephine, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate you opening up about your experiences, uh, talking about the wonderful work you're doing through your books and uh, through the Doorway Project. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing your perspective today. Okay, thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share on homelessness? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, or post to the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page. Still to come on this season of Seattle Growth Podcast are City Council Member Mike O'Brien, worldwide expert on poverty Scott Allard, activist Daishik Kim Hawkins Jr., and several more. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.